Welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary. Hi, everyone, and here we are, episode two of Lo-Fi Lectionary. We made it. We made it at least to episode two. Um, oh, uh, first, right off the bat, that last episode, kind of long, don't you think? It's gonna, yeah, it was a longer episode because we had to do both the intro to the book of Luke as well as the actual um, reading of the text. So uh, hopefully, I don't think the rest of these will be that long, but uh, if you made it, good job for you. Courage. Um, (laughs) um, And if you made it all the way to episode two through that long episode, you're probably either a family member of myself or a close friend that feels like maybe you owe me something. So, but, you know, we'll we'll press on anyway. So here we go. I am, uh, I'm here uh, in the office, ready to, uh, to get into episode number two. I've got my green-flavored mint tea that I got at Sprouts this morning. And while I was picking up my tea at Sprouts this morning, it was, uh, they were playing Neil Diamond. And it was the uh, Taking It Slow, Let's All Do The Best We Can song, which always makes me think of that Will Ferrell uh, sketch where he's like, I can turn invisible if I really try hard, which just cracks me up. So I'm in a really good mood. So here we go. Episode... Number two. Let's do it. Um, Here we go. Luke 2. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was descended from the house in the family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. While they were there, a time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So there we go. That's the whole Christmas story in in, uh, in two little paragraphs. <laughs> um, actually, there's going to be a little bit more coming up. But uh, it's, it's pretty short and it's pretty sweet and... Uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff in here. So we are introduced to Joseph, uh, who's uh, going to be Jesus's dad. And uh, what's interesting about Joseph is um, Mary has apparently come to him and had to have the conversation about, hey, I'm uh, pregnant and I'm expecting a child. And guess what? An angel came and told me uh, the kid is from the spirit of God and it's going to be the son of God. Isn't that great? <laughs> I mean, you have to imagine what that conversation would be like. And you have to imagine for Joseph, I, I mean, do you buy into that? I mean, in Luke, you know, there's there's no, like, um, inclusion of a little part, like in one of the other Gospels about how, yeah, yeah, Joseph was also visited and someone explained it to him. We don't get that here. And so you have to kind of wonder how that conversation went. Because um, due to custom at the time, I mean, if, if Mary was being under suspicion of having um, you know, committed fornication and uh, having sex with someone and gotten pregnant. I mean, Joseph is, all, is on, in all his rights to basically uh, turn her away and to cancel the engagement. And that would basically uh, set her off on a path to be ostracized, but from the entire community, possibly um, for the rest of her life for having uh, committed adultery. Oh, well, it legally wouldn't be adultery because they weren't married, but you get the point. And um, by taking her on, um, and keeping the engagement together um, and joining her in this this work of being Jesus' dad, um, that's possibly likely going to cause, um, just as Mary is being open to having her reputation be ruined in her community and in her family, um, that's now open to Joseph as well. And he's taking that on. Of, um, yeah, I mean, either just lightly being looked upon as a fool or possibly being looked upon as maybe the potential father, you know, and having broken the rule himself. Um, and so again, uh, just like Mary and just like a number of others we've seen already and that we're going to meet, um, God doing something among them brings a lot of joy and goodness, but it also leaves them very vulnerable and kind of makes a big, uh, mess of their lives in a sense. And it's just kind of interesting. So we've got those dynamics going on, uh, and they have to travel from their tribal, um, travel from their town to their tribal home, uh, which for Joseph is in Bethlehem for this big census. And that's, uh, and it's there that the birth happens. Um, so you would imagine that Joseph has some family in the tribal home, at least maybe some ancestors or people to connect to. But as far as we can tell, uh, they're not at the birth. 
Um, we've just had this uh, other birth story in Luke 1 with uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth's child with, with John's birth. And they're surrounded by this warm group of uh, family and friends and their community who are all so excited that, yes, you're finally having a baby. And isn't that great after all these years? And they're all there and they want to help name the kid and they want to be there for the birth. And that's traditionally what would have happened. Births would have been surrounded by a big community. And here for Joseph and Mary, there's no one else there, at least that we get by name or by mention. He just gives birth to a child and there's no place for them at the end. So they lay the kid in a manger. And uh, so there's a big contrast already that all of these, there's two kind of supernaturally uh, born children, but there's no naming ceremony for Joseph and Mary. And there's not this uplifting moment in the middle of their community where everyone's like, yay, isn't this great, this thing that God is doing for you? It's quiet. And this is also uh, very much in contrast to um, emperor births at the time. So we've had Jesus has already been spoken of as being, you know, the Messiah, the Lord, the Savior. That's going to come up again later on in the story um, a number of times. Actually, I'm sorry, it hasn't come up yet. It's going to come up Um But to the people that Luke is writing to, that's what they believe. They believe that this person is the son of God, the Christ, which is, you know, the other word for king, the Lord. Um, And uh, they they speak of him in terms of as an emperor. And uh, the emperor here already in the story has commanded everyone in the Roman Empire to have to travel and return to their cities so he can count them and count all of the people under his command, under his authority. And here... The real savior is born as a little baby wrapped in cloths and laid in a manger in a very quiet, dark um, community, born to questionable parents with no ceremony. And so Luke is starting off his story of how God is going to save the world by being, by pointing out how tiny and little this baby is born to two peasant folks who are kind of from the sticks. And uh, God is born into the world, the son of God, according to Luke, as in a very fragile and weak and needy state. This this child is going to depend on these two parents for their very existence. And back then, um, they would have an even more, uh, even deeper sense of, of how fragile a baby is than now, because the infant mortality rate back then was just crazy high. And that's God's plan, okay? God's plan is a little baby. <laughs> and that's kind of crazy. So, um, and with that in mind, let's continue on. In that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord, This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, more angels, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace among those whom he favors. So um, there's no guests for uh, for Mary and Joseph's uh, birth of their first child. And so it seems like God goes and gets guests to surround these people. And he goes and he gets shepherds, which, um, you know, back then, historically, um, within their society, not the highest class folks to be around. And as soon as the angels appear to them, they're terrified. Because remember, um, angels aren't the cute cherubs that we often depict them as uh, on greeting cards. I was going to make a comment on that, but uh, just on greeting cards and stuff like that today. Um, They're scary. Um, but these people tell them, don't be afraid, and they bring good news of great joy for all people. Uh, in Luke, this, this birth of this child, this coming of Jesus, is part of a larger vision than for any single person, any single country, any single religious group alone. It's a global event. And uh, this good news is that there's a Savior, um, a, a Messiah, um, which is uh, the Hebrew version of the, of the Greek word Christ, um, which is, uh, could be translated as King. Um, they talk about him as the Lord and Savior. Um, and so what's interesting is that those are all, uh, both religious and political terms, uh, for, for their audience. So when Luke is using those terms, he's, he's, uh, appropriating, um, political and religious terms that would be used, uh, for, um, 
leaders of nations and the emperor himself. So the emperor in Rome was viewed as the savior, um, the person that keeps us safe, the person that leads us in conquest, um, and the Lord, the person that has authority over all of us. And here these angels are like a savior, the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord is born to you. And it's this little baby. And uh, so they're making a pretty big statement here. Luke is um, if, cause if Jesus is the savior, um, that means the Caesar, the emperor is not. Um, and let, we're going to, we're going to see as we continue on in the book of Luke, how that works out for, uh, for Jesus and for the people that go along with him. And remember that Luke is writing to a post-apocalyptic community. Um, so by dropping in these mentions of, hey, Jesus is the real emperor. Jesus is above the emperor that we have. Who's, uh, and if you live in a culture where maybe that emperor is causing you lots of trouble, causing you lots of pain, has just come in and laid waste to large parts of your people's community, um, it's a, it's a not-so-subtle reminder that there is something bigger going on. Um, and then to that post-apocalyptic community, you have Luke saying, do not be afraid. It's been said three times in Luke already. And again, uh, this reiteration of favor as being part of God's central message. Isn't that interesting? So uh, the shepherds are there, and let's see what happens next. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. When they saw this, they made known what had been told to them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard as it had been told them. After eight days passed, it was time to circumcise the child, and he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So the, the first people to go and spread the word about Jesus are these shepherds, these low-class uh, kind of people who live on the outskirts of the community, who live with you know out, out in the dirt, um, out with the animals, um, are kind of uh, low-class folks. Um, and they're the first ones who get to, to spread the good news. That's kind of interesting. And uh, everyone around them is amazed at what's been told to them. Uh, amazed is going to be a key word in Luke. It's going to come up again later. I'm winking. You can't see that right now but because uh, <laughs> you're listening to this on audio only. Um, and, uh, and Jesus is born and Mary treasures all these words in her heart and the shepherds return praising God. And then, um, they wait the ceremonial amount of days and then they circumcise and name the child and they call him Jesus and names are a big deal. Um, in, uh, Hebrew culture, um, especially in ancient times, um, names were kind of given to you to kind of, um, as again, um, they were very dynamic. Uh, your name yourself meant something and it kind of created a path for you. And kind of uh, maybe even revealed a little bit about where your life was headed or, or, or how you were seen in the community, things like that. And so uh, Jesus gets this name um, in Hebrew. I'm probably going to butcher it because I never um, studied Hebrew very thoroughly. <laughs> a bunch of people just turned off the podcast. Um, uh, and he gets the name Yeshua, uh, which is a short form of the, the same name as, as, as what we would say is Joshua. Um, Joshua, uh, there's a couple people named Joshua in the Old Testament. And his name means to save or rescue. Um, and just for fun, I'm going to make a little winky side note here. Um, a, a fun thing to think about is how is Jesus going to be the save uh, rescue person um, in a way that's different or similar? The Old Testament Joshua. I think you're going to come up. You're going to see a lot of interesting differences, but that'll come up in another podcast. But uh, to continue on, um, he's going to save rescue. This is, again, a message of favor to all people. Um, there's some saving rescuing going on with this, with this little boy. Um, it's going to be for all people. Um, other names that have come up so far in the story, um, John. So John got the name John and it's God has shown favor. Huh. Interesting. Lots of favor going on. And the name Zechariah is the Lord has remembered. And, uh, we see in the, in the, in the life of Zechariah, how God, uh, eventually remembered him and, uh, gave him the child. And so when he has his child, he names him John. Hey, God is showing us favor. Um, so Mary and Joseph um, give him this, this uh, name, Jesus, um, as they were instructed. So they're following the, the directions. That's pretty good. And uh, the name Mary, interesting last note here. Um, we aren't exactly sure exactly what it means because it has a couple different possible origins, but it might mean rebellious, which is a lot of fun to think about. 
And it might also mean wished for child, which is really fun to think about considering the fact of who her child was um, and who she is as the bringer of that child into the world. It also might mean bitterness, which is going to come up pretty shortly in the story. Uh, So that's something to think about, but uh, let's go get there. Let's continue on. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. I'm laughing. This is where it gets good. Whose name was Simeon. The man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation, the comfort of Israel. And the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles, and for the glory of your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what had been said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So here we are, uh, just this next part of the story. It's Jesus's first trip to the temple. Um, now, uh, if I ha- didn't mention this last episode, there's an interesting relation geographically with the temple throughout all of Luke. Almost all of the action in Luke as the story flows, c- flows either to towards the temple or away from the temple. To or away, to or away. And you always kind of have to know where people are in relation to the temple as the story goes. Um, so later on, while Jesus is traveling, he's always kind of either flowing away from the temple for a direct reason or flowing to it or kind of circling around it, things like that. Um, And it kind of helps us to really identify kind of what Luke's up to in the story. Um, And by adulthood, Jesus is going to know the temple um, really well. Um, As as we get to later on, um, we're going to see that his family actually makes a trip to the temple every year. um, And uh, that's going to come into play in the story. Um, So they come to the temple and they're there to make a sacrifice of it's it's a ritual of purification for their for their kid, and we see that the sacrifice that they're making is a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, as it was written um, in the law in the Old Testament. And uh, this is an interesting note. Um, Luke's audience uh, probably would have gotten this, but it's hard for us to pick up on. Um, in the law, when it's said for you to make offerings, there is always kind of these allowances for different people of different social stations to um, be able to make. Um, different size offerings when they went to the temple to make offerings for various things. So it was like the the offering that you can make is a is a bull in some instances. So bring it bring it bring a cow, you know, and make sure it's a pure one and stuff like that according to these rules. And if you can't afford to bring a a, a bull, bring you know uh, uh, this animal instead. Let's so like a sheep or a goat, um, and make sure it's pure and ready and it's the best one that you can give. And if you can't bring a sheep or a goat, bring um, you know uh, some birds something that costs less money that would be easier for poor people to be able to afford to go and participate and give. And if you can't bring those, you then bring some grain or some flour or some oil or something. Um, so there's kind of built into this religious system, this idea that the religion is for everybody. Um, and so even in the laws, there are all these allowances for both rich and poor people to go and give. And Mary and Joseph are bringing a poor person's sacrifice. It's, it's just a, a pair of doves. Or two young pigeons. So that kind of gives us a clue into what Jesus' home life is like and is going to be like as he's young. Um, and then moving on, um, we, uh, we then get to my favorite part of the story. Um, Simeon, this uh, 
this uh, person who's, who's the Holy Spirit rests on him, it says, but he's outside of where the Holy Spirit lives. He's outside of the temple. It's, it directly says that he has to come into the temple to accidentally run into uh, Mary and Joseph and Jesus. And again, Luke is kind of reiterating this idea that God is very much at work when the Holy Spirit moves. It's almost, almost always outside the temple with unlikely kind of goofy misfit people um, as we just saw with those shepherds in the birth story, um, than it is with people who you would think it would become with the officials and the teachers and the priests and things like that who are who are close and work within the temple. It's kind of an interesting um, social dynamic that Luke keeps bringing up in the way that God works. Um, and Simeon, the only thing that we know about him is, again, Luke points him out as being someone who is righteous and devout. And remember, in the Bible, that's actually a pretty rare thing to be called. Um, so uh, Simeon is good. And, and the only qualifier that we get for what it means for Simeon to be religious and devout is that he's looking forward to the consolation, the comforting of Israel. And remember, Luke is writing this book to a people who are also looking forward to the consolation of their people. Um, so Simeon is kind of a good example for them. Um, again, just as we saw with Elizabeth and Zechariah, who are also called religious and devout, they're also waiting for their own comfort and consolation. They're trying to hold out while they're barren. Um, and that's going to be things that I think would connect with Luke's primary audience really closely and might connect with us today, um, depending on how you're feeling about your situation. Um, and, uh, and as Simeon kind of, uh, <laughs> So Simeon goes, you have to imagine Mary and Joseph. Okay, so they're in line. Like they go to the temple and you have to imagine there's one place where everyone in the whole country goes to give their sacrifices. So there's probably this huge, massive line to get in. Um, so think of like the worst checkout counter or like Disneyland ride light line that you've ever been in. And they're just there with their, with their, with their young baby who's probably, you know, fussy or crying as they're just waiting in this line. I don't know if they have strollers or anything back then or, or Bjorn or whatever. They're just kind of holding this kid and they just want to, and, and they also have to hold a little, you know, they have to hold some, some birds, some live birds. And, and they're, they're waiting in line with all these people. There's animals and there's noise and all kinds of stuff. And this guy, I, it doesn't say that they know who Simeon is. Like this guy who's just full of the spirit <laughs> comes up and takes their child into his own arms and like lifts it up. You know, and it's just, and starts praising God, say, you know, and like sings this poem out really loud. Master, you are now dismissing your servant in peace. Um, and, and I just think that's kind of funny. I picture Mary just to be like, what? You know, like wide eyed, but kind of quiet, maybe. It's like just watching this happen. Um, I mean, already they've seen so many weird things happen around uh, the birth. They've seen angels. They've uh, seen shepherds come and tell them that angels sent them. And they, they are amazed and they kind of ponder these things in their heart all the time. And now here's this weird, wacky guy who waddles into the temple and has been waiting his whole life to see the Messiah child and, uh, and sees their kid and grabs him and uh, starts singing the song in the middle of the crowd. And I imagine everyone else in the checkout line is kind of looking left and right at them. <laughs> and um, and uh, let's look at some of the words of, of what Simeon says. Um, it reiterates a lot of these big themes in Luke. Um, Luke is just hammering away on some of this stuff. Um, You've prepared the presence of all peoples, a light to the revelation of Gentiles and a glory for your people, Israel. Again, um, it's, it's highlighting that, yes, this is kind of centered on the people of Israel and Simeon's been waiting for the comfort of Israel. But what's happening here with this baby is for all people and for the Gentiles specifically, like, which is everyone outside of Israel, it's local action, but global interest, um, that it seems like God is up to. And uh, it reiterates again this idea that Jesus is going to be their savior. You know, the salvation is, is kind of centered around something about him. We don't know exactly what it's going to be yet, but that's what it is. And Jesus hasn't even done anything yet, but all this prophecy and all this promise and all this excitement over who he is is just building the tension and the story and importance of, if, you, if you're hearing the story for the first time is maybe what some of Luke's audience had. It's it, the, the, the tension is building. You're waiting to see exactly what um, Jesus is going to do. Um, and again, people are amazed. Wink. Um, you know, if you were playing a winking game or a drinking game, you know, in this, every time you hear amazed, you know, that's your cue. Um, people are amazed at what was being said about Jesus. And then Simeon turns and, and blesses Mary and tells them, you know, this is great. 
but um, he's going to be held up as a sign to be opposed. It's setting the stage again. It's building the tension that Jesus is going to be doing good things, but not everyone is going to be on board. Not everyone is going to get it. And you have to imagine Simeon turning and looking into Mary's eyes and saying, a sword will pierce your own soul too. Um, so be, again, this idea of if, if you go along with, what God is doing for some of these people, it's going to leave you vulnerable and it's not going to be great even for people that are doing good things. Um, so there's rising and there's falling going on, continuing to go on in the story of Luke. And, uh, okay, here we go. They're going to meet someone else. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She had never left the temple, but worshiped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So here's this uh, second character that that comes up and meets them in the checkout line, and it's Anna, who's a prophet. So again, Luke is, uh, is, is a little countercultural here, pointing out how um, there's a woman who's a prophet. Um, now, Simeon, if I'm looking back through the text, and I don't see Simeon as being uh, particularly named as being a prophet, but here, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, a widow, is being named specifically as a prophet, which is a pretty big deal. Um, and would even see, be a big deal to a lot of uh, religious folks today who uh, have some uh, interesting ideas about the place of women within their community. There we go, a lady prophet and a widow. Um, a woman in Luke is going to be a, a big deal as we go forward in the story. So I'm just setting that up now. Um, and again, it's a person who's kind of a, maybe a, a least likely company um, for, uh, for, for, for God, for Jesus uh, in the temple. Um, maybe someone who is maybe pushed a little bit to the outskirts because she's both a widow and a woman and has been living alone um, and fasting and, and uh, stuff like that. But uh, here she gets it right and she sees Jesus and approaches. She's also been waiting for him to be there and uh, praises God and has been looking for the redemption of Jerusalem just as Simeon was. Um, but whereas Simeon was kind of outside the temple and had to come in, Anna has been living inside of it this whole time. And they're all waiting for Jesus. There is, again, this global interest of God and the work of the Spirit happens both in and out and in and out flow to and from the temple. Um, you know, God is doing something new in the book of Luke. And a lot of it happens outside the temple, but it also seems like because there's this connection between, as we'll see, the work of Jesus um, to and from as it's geographically centered there, it seems like God isn't interested in dumping the temple or leaving it. He wants to uh, reform what's going on there and perfect it and restore it. Um, which is really just kind of an interesting thing to note. Um, and uh, let's go ahead and continue on in the story. When they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, Mary and Joseph returned to Galilee, their town, own, their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Um, real quick, we're going to stop here um, and just note this interesting idea that um, Jesus, the Son of God, the Lord, the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, has to grow. Um, Luke is pointing this out here. We're going to see it again very soon. Um, but we have to kind of skip over this. Um, whatever you believe about Jesus, it seems like Luke is at least presenting Jesus as being some sort of divine being in a way that, um, in contrast to other people, um, but being very human um, in connection with all the other people in the story. Um, but this divine being has to become and grow strong and has to come and be grow and become wise over time. There's a lot of mystery that happens with this. And I'm going to toss out a religious term for you here, just incarnation. Um, uh, for you Greek scholars, it's, 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 it comes from the same root word as, as carne, which is still the word for meat at some of my base, some of my favorite restaurants. Um, this uh, becoming meat of God, this becoming human. Um, 
of the Son of God. And uh, there's a lot of mystery because it's not exactly clear exactly how that works. I mean, even Mary only gets like, yeah, the Spirit of God is going to become upon you and you're going to have a baby. Um, It's not laid out as well as a lot of us might like. Um, But whatever the Son of God is and however that works, they're very human um, because they have to grow up and they have to become strong and they have to work and learn over time. But all along this, again, the favor of God was upon him. Let's go ahead and continue on and see what happens next. Now, every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up as usual for the festival. When the festival was ended and they started to return, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents did not know it. Assuming that it was he, he was in the group of travelers, they went a day's journey on. Then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you with great anxiety. And he said to them, Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and years and in divine and human favor. So um, this is the only boyhood story that we get where Jesus actually does something. Um, This is the only story where he does some action. So far, he's just kind of been a little baby and everyone's been acting around him. But this is the only story where we get where he actually does something, at least in the book of Luke. And he's 12 years old, which is one year before um, he would kind of be looked upon as an adult. So it's the only still he's just on the verge of being an adult. Um, It's the last year. So he's still considered a child. And so. Um, Mary and Joseph, again, every year they go to the temple, to and from the temple, to and from the temple. Um, And while they're there, um, whenever you traveled, you traveled in a big family pack because traveling was not very safe back then. So you always traveled with a a group. Um, It's kind of like going on the the Oregon Trail. You always went with a big group. Um, So you always had some resources and some people to look to and depend on and keep safe. And um, so they always travel and, and they go there and they're there for Passover and they're going home and they're with this big group, so they kind of just figure that Jesus is in the crowd, you know, with, with uncles or aunts or, um, you know, with his cousins or or whoever else. And it's not until they kind of break for dinner, it looks like. You know, maybe you're on the campfire. They're like, okay, like, you know, we're all here to sit down and, and taking time to rest. And they can't find their kid. And uh, as, a, as a parent of a four-and-a-half-year-old, there's been a few times where uh, – you can't find your kid <laughs> and you get like just the most, uh, the sharpest moment of uh, feeling of dread just that happens in your heart. So I can only imagine for Mary and Joseph, they've been traveling already for a full day and they don't know where their son is. Is he back in town? Did he wander off while they were traveling? Did something dangerous happen to him? And so they, they leave the pack and they run, I imagine back into town And they search for him, it says, with great anxiety. And they only find him after three days. Oh, my goodness. That must have just been awful. Um, And and again, um, maybe there's a connection between these two characters who search for Jesus and can't find him and are looking for him and wondering where he is to Luke's audience who are in this community that has experienced great tragedy and great loss. And they've lost the temple. They've lost... Um, a lot of the centers of their community, they've probably lost their own family members and friends. Maybe they've been searching for them. They, maybe they spent their own few days trying to find them and the devastation and the smoke. And when it cleared, maybe they couldn't find them. Or maybe they could never go back home. And maybe they're holding out and searching with great anxiety still, even when things look their worst. Maybe... Um, there's a connection that they feel with Mary and Joseph in the story. Um, but after three days, they find him. And three days um, might be a little bit of a clue or a little bit of a, maybe Luke is kind of um, bookending his story about Jesus. Because 
Um, in the future, um, at, towards the end of the story, you're going to get to this moment where, you know, not to give it away, spoilers, Jesus dies and is, is dead for three days. Luke um, says three days. Um, and after Jesus comes back, um, he's going to meet with some people and uh, who are looking for him. And he's going to say, uh, or there's going to be an angel, actually, that says, why are you looking for him among the dead who's been raised? Um, after those three days. And so there's going to be some other people who are looking for him after three days of the future. So Luke is kind of framing his story possibly a little bit. And, um, and yeah, we, we just get to this really interesting little uh, moment that Jesus has with his family. I've always had, had a hard time trying to read. I, 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 could, I know probably what Mary and Joseph sound like when they're like, child, why have you treated us like this? I've felt that way myself. Um, but then Jesus in his response, uh, why were you searching for me? Um, I, I've always tried to discover the tone of that. You know, is it very calm and clear? Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be here? Or is it like, why are you searching for me? You know, like, I, you know, or is, or is he surprised? Is he shocked? Is he, um, is he maybe being a little cold to them? Um, I, I, I'm not exactly sure. Um, maybe one of you can, can help me out with that. Um, but again, uh, then he follows it up with a sense, you know, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Again, Jesus has very early on, even as a child, identified something of a connection between him and Jerusalem and the temple. Um, and so kind of, again, as they travel to and from through these past few years, he's developed a connection to it. Um, and Jesus has to grow. Again, we get it reiterated by Luke. Jesus increased in wisdom and ears and in divine and human favor, um, and it seems like Jesus has to kind of come to a developing understanding of who he is and stuff like that. But here, as he's verging into adulthood, it seems like he's come to a piece of it. This is my father's house where he's, he's identified uh, something between him and the temple. Um, and uh, I think as I grew up, I was like, oh, it seems like Jesus is kind of a little robot boy. Um, yeah, he understands that he's the son of God and he has all the planned before him and stuff like that. But Luke quickly twice has already mentioned that. Um, he has to grow in wisdom and in favor um, and stuff like that. So maybe he doesn't have it all figured out. Maybe he's much more human and has to, the son of God as being born into human form has to, has to have let go a lot of um, power or knowledge or wisdom or authority in order to be born as a human being. Um, and so there's a lot more, the, the, the incarnation itself is a lot more messy than I think uh, a lot of religious folk kind of give it credit for. Um, and Mary and Joseph don't understand what's going on. So even the people that have been given the most direct clue from God about what's going on with this kid still have a hard time understanding exactly what's happening with their kid. And it's been 12 years, and maybe they haven't really heard anything from God in those years. And so maybe um, as those memories of his birth maybe grow a little faint, maybe um, they don't really know what to always make of him <laughs> or what's going on. But it does say that they do treasure these things, uh, at least uh, Mary, his mother treasured these things in their heart. They kind of hold on to them. They kind of uh, keep themselves in mind of, of, of what's going on. And so that's an interesting little vignette. So let's go ahead and uh, continue on. Um, actually, we're going to stop there. That's the end of the chapter. That's the end of Luke 2. And so at the, at the end of our, of our text for today, of the reading for today, um, oh man, this is, it's, it's, this is one of my favorite parts of the whole book, just because there's so much humor in it and tension, and we get to see, see things that we're not going to see again of, of um, Mary and Joseph and, and what they do and, and how they handle Jesus. Sorry, I'm a little burpy. And, uh, you know, the, these, these, these kind of oddball shepherds and prophets and Simeon and stuff like that, um, I, I, I think it's a fun part of the book. I hope you, you liked it too. But let's go ahead and ask our three questions. So um, in Luke 2, um, Luke is writing this story. And in writing the story where God is a character in the story and God is kind of up to something, what is God like? Um, well, God seems to have this interest in uh, misfits and outcast people. Um, and uh, And he seems to use them a lot instead of, um, the people who are maybe the, the, the brightest, the people at the top, the people who are the most highly regarded in their communities, the people with power, the people with privilege and stuff like that. It seems that from God's point of view, um, there's, there's no sense of stratification when God looks at people, at least in the book of Luke. And um, whereas we kind of see people as being on all these different levels and there's people we choose to 
we choose for certain tasks based on their skills or their position and things like that. And as we all kind of fight um, and, uh, and bicker for position and things like that, um, God doesn't seem to see people the way that we see people or even see ourselves. Um, God is working both within and outside of the temple. And, and particularly more often, he seems to be working with, you know, these rural folks, Mary and Joseph, who live out in, in Galilee in the sticks, um, not in the big city. And uh, he seems to, you know, and, and with the example of Simeon, this kind of goofy guy who has to go into the temple to, uh, to find him, um, he works out with the outsiders a lot. And yet um, God uh, doesn't stay away from them um, and doesn't stay away from people on the inside or people at the top. He wants to redeem those people. And so we get the interesting example of, of Anna, who's a prophet from the, the, inside the temple. And you see Luke having, uh, not Luke, you see Jesus having uh, this really strong connection with the temple itself that he identifies it as his father's house. So there's this weird connection beyond social systems and social status and social positions um, that's going on. It seems to be that God is up to something that has something for everybody. Um, as it keeps getting highlighted, even um, just politically or um, culturally or religiously um, with, you know, God's mission and what's happening with Jesus is, is very important for people both within and outside of Israel. It's the message of presence for all peoples and things like that. Um, and so there's this global vision of God. Where, and uh, again, within this global vision, what's the primary thing that Luke wants to communicate about it? And God seems interested in communicating in the book of Luke is favor and goodness for all people. And as Jesus is kind of being set up to be this alternative emperor, this alternative king and savior, in contrast to the emperor, he's bringing favor and goodness and peace for all people. He's consoling people. His interest is in all people. The emperor wants to count all the people, um, you know, to see who's under his control. Jesus is here for all people because God wants to show favor to all of them. Isn't that interesting? I mean, God is the one who's here in Luke to show favor for all people. What's God's plan for doing that? God's going to be vulnerable. Isn't that interesting? Like God, um, the son of God, this divine being um, is born as a little teeny tiny baby wrapped in cloths, laid in a manger to be raised by two human parents. Um, hopefully they're going to make sure that he stays alive. <laughs> you know, um, God's vulnerable. And um, in a lot of our religious texts or in the way a lot of religious people talk, um, all throughout history, maybe we don't make note of that enough. But Luke here is like God is uh, is fragile, in a sense, or at least the Son of God is. That's kind of interesting. Um, question number two: What are people like? Um, the people in the story that do well are the people who are waiting for the goodness, for the favor, for the peace, for the consolation to go to Israel and to all people. So Simeon and Anna and Mary and these people that are that are that are gung ho and that are are ready and that get to be a kind of a part of this plan in a very special way are the people who have been waiting for the rising, the uplifting of people at the bottom and uh, don't have aren't short sighted enough to think that God's favor is only open to certain groups or certain people and kind of aren't interested in fighting and squabbling for a particular position. Um, and there's a lot of people who respond to that. As soon as God is, it's kind of revealed that this is the way that God is going to work and a kid is going to be born and it's, it's going to show favor and goodness and peace. There's a lot of people who are on board. Um, the shepherds and uh, these prophets and these parents and stuff like that of Jesus. And the people who seem to, to be able to go along with it are people who are also waiting for goodness to be poured out. Um, there are also people who seek the comfort of others. Um, and yet along the way, there are people who are willing to be put in a position of vulnerability, um, even as they're doing things right. Sometimes we have this idea that, um, if we do all things right, we should be invulnerable. And yet, uh, God here, uh, is, is doing something active and Jesus himself is going to be very vulnerable. Um, and here all the people who are part of the plan along the way are all put in a position of being very vulnerable. And some are going to have their dreams come true, like Elizabeth and Zechariah finally get to have that baby, and they've been vulnerable all the way along. 
Some of them, as they say yes to the plan, are going to have their souls pierced. Um, and let's say yes to it at every step along the way, even with that being laid out for them. Um, Joseph here in chapter 2 says yes to, um, to Mary, to going along with the plan and, and being Jesus' father, um, even though it might make a big mess of everything he had planned for his life. And they're the people that hold on to hope even in the midst of the pain that being vulnerable is going to bring them, which again, is maybe a really strong message to Luke's audience. These people who have experienced the loss of so many things they hold dear and have experienced so much pain and tragedy are being given example after example after example of, yes, that God's favor and goodness is here and is coming in fuller form, but it means that we're all going to have to hold on to hope of that the midst of great pain and great tragedy. And we're going to see more and more examples of that as the story goes on. Um, and so question three, uh, why this story? So why have religious people and Christians, um, Luke kept this story, they kept this story, and when they made the Bible, they said, yes, this book of Luke that contains this story gets in, and Christians have been talking about it and reading it and telling it around campfires for years and years and years. And so why this story in particular the story sets us, uh, for them, I think, this, uh, first of all, just this really clear showing of how connected God is to human persons. Um, that the Son of God would be born as a little baby that experiences weakness and fragility and, uh, and even experiences with human persons this journey that we have to go on to grow, um, to, to grow in wisdom and grow in favor and grow in understanding and, and grow in strength um, all along the way with us. Um, the, in Luke, we, we get a vision of Jesus as not being some sort of robot boy in which God's consciousness is downloaded into. Um, Jesus has to learn and grow and learn to work with people and has to, has to go home and obey his parents, as the story says. Um, after they find him in the temple. Um, and all along the way, um, Luke hammers away the theme of that God is particularly wanting to show that he's interested in being connected with people at the low end of, uh, of status or power or wealth or, um, or ability all along the way. And uh, that's a story to hold on to, especially if you find yourself in the uh, feeling low or being low or um, feeling weak or fragile, um, to remember that God is, is, in the story of Luke, very, very closely connected to us as a, as a species, as a creation, and, uh, and us as, a, as human persons who are growing and trying to make our way in the world. Um, another thing I think of uh, is that the story um, clearly um, hammers away, of, again, of the theme of holding on to hope for goodness and good things, even in the midst of great pain, um, there are people who are desperately seeking Jesus in the story, and people who have been waiting for the consolation of all things. And uh, often, maybe we find ourselves um, throughout history, people have found the I, ways to connect and identify with those people in the story. And when pain and when trouble and when challenging things come, and when it, life is just a struggle every day. It doesn't mean you're doing it wrong in Luke chapter 2. It doesn't mean that God is absent or has left you or has given up on you. In fact, it means, it might mean that you're doing things right. And that, but that doing the right thing often leaves you vulnerable. And even in this story, God says, my son is going to be vulnerable as well. Um, isn't that interesting? That's a fascinating thing. And I think that, that's a reason for people to have kept this story around. And then once again, I hate to sound like a broken record, but again, at the end of the story, um, we just, uh, all throughout the story, Luke is hammering away this idea of that God is a God who has favor for all people. And if we, if those in our community who are outcasts, either ourselves or people that we meet, are no less valuable to God and valuable to the world and should be no less valuable to us if we think that the story has it right. 
And if we find ourselves in power or in positions of privilege or in positions of high status or ability or anything, the story is a reminder that we should be spending our lives raising up those who are low or in need and serving those who aren't valued properly or equally um, because God values them very, very much and wants them to know and experience his favor. Um, We need to eagerly seek his consolation. Um, I keep saying we, even though I'm trying to not be preachy, but people who held on to the story for, you know, the last 2000 years might want to be hanging on to it because it's a reminder for them that they should eagerly seek the consolation of others. Um, and they need, and they need to be working for the redemption and the reformation of the institutions and communities so that everyone experiences God's favor. Luke two, like hammers away on that idea. It's, it's all throughout the whole book. We're going to see it. Um, so just in closing, um, as we kind of wrap up the second episode of Lo-Fi Lectionary, uh, we see that Jesus is this weird mix of divine and human. Um, he's the son of God, but he's growing and learning, and he's driving his parents crazy. And people, as they see it, are always amazed. Um, and this little child born in a barn, um, Jesus is amazing. Um, the teachers in the temple... Um, everyone's kind of amazed. And so as we continue on in the story, um, hopefully if we read it right, and hopefully if we see the story the way that Luke's presenting it, we might also find ourselves amazed at certain points in the story. Um, I I kind of want to try and keep that just kind of in sight that um, the more you know it, um, the more maybe we would be amazed at what we find. So that's the end of Lo-Fi Electionary Episode 2. Thanks for, uh, for listening. I hope you're getting a lot out of this. Um, and uh, I can't wait for episode three. Here we go. Hi, everyone. I just want to say a quick thank you to you for listening to this episode of Lo-Fi Lectionary. If you liked the podcast, please help us out. You can review, subscribe, and share the podcast any way you can. Um, the more people we get in on the game, the funner this is going to be. Uh, If you want to participate in the discussion for this episode, you can come visit our website at kevinlester.net and follow the links to the podcast and then to the link for this episode. Um, You can also find our podcast on Facebook, and we can discuss and and keep things going on there. Uh, Just search Facebook for Lo-Fi Lectionary, and you'll find us. You can also get in touch with me, Kevin, directly at lofi at kevinlester.net. And that's lofi with no dash. So L-O-F-I at kevinlester.net. And you can also find me on Twitter at lofi kevin. With no dash again. So at Lo-Fi Kevin. Um, That's kind of it. So thank you for coming. And we'll see you guys next episode. Thank you for listening.